By manipulating price levels, the Fed isn't just preventing smaller intermittent fires from naturally running their course while creating larger fires down the road. Instead, think of the Fed's actions as the arsonist that lights a fire, leaves through the back door in the middle of the night, and then is celebrated as a hero when it arrives through the front door to fight the fire with gasoline. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I'm Guy Swan and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. Sorry for being light on the episodes last week. I uh, was out at BitBlockBoom, and I just want to say to everyone who joined me out there, uh, it was so awesome to meet everybody in person and hang out. And uh, it was just so great being with a whole bunch of Bitcoiners who just don't give a shit and want to hang out and have fun and talk about Bitcoin. And I had an absolute blast. Uh, so it was just awesome meeting everybody, and I'm, I'm, I'm so glad we got to do that this year. Um, I, w- I was worried I was going to be stuck in my house for the rest of 2020. <laughs> um, but uh, with that, uh, if anybody saw the tweet, I know uh, Parker Lewis did just the most evil thing ever, and he dropped his next piece in the Gradually Then Suddenly series literally af- hours after I arrived in Dallas and could not record. So uh, we had to wait through the weekend. But here it is, um, uh, as quickly as I could get to it. This is Unchained Capital blog. Parker Lewis is next in the Gradually Then Suddenly series. If you're new to this, you got to go back and listen to it. This is one of the best series um, uh, we've done on the show. It is an absolute must listen. But right now, we are going to break into Parker Lewis's Bitcoin is One for All. At the Democratic National Convention, August 2020, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez described the Bernie Sanders presidential campaign as, quote, a movement that realizes the unsustainable brutality of an economy that rewards explosive inequalities of wealth for the few at the expense of long-term stability for the many. That the current economic system is working very well for a few at the expense of the many has become more widely recognized and accepted across both sides of the political aisle in recent years. While there is vehement disagreement on the appropriate solution, most everyone at least agrees that there is a problem. Fortunately or unfortunately, there is no political solution to a problem that is inherently of economic origin. It is unfortunate because politicians of all ideologies will make promises of grandeur while further dividing the nation as they hopelessly search for a political solution which does not exist. At the same time, it is fortunate that the solution is not political, as bridging partisan divides has historically proven to be a fool's errand. He's got two charts from Statista that show the gravity of this situation and just how bad it is one showing wealth distribution and that the top 10% own a full 70% of U.S. wealth, and another a survey showing that 45% of Americans have $0 worth of savings, and adding another 24% to that number, a full 69% of the population, near 70%, have less than $1,000. Without doubt, the economic structure is broken. Wealth gaps are only becoming wider. It is unsustainable, and economic instability is everywhere. The stock market and national average home values are back at all-time highs, while tens of millions of Americans are filing for unemployment and half of society has practically no savings. Economic equations do not add up, That is a hard-to-deny reality. It is suffocating many, and it applies globally. Politicians simply are not the answer. The fundamental problem with the current economic structure lies not in politics, but in the currencies which coordinate economic activity, e.g. the dollar, euro, yen, 
peso, bolivar, etc. The chink in the armor is in the foundation. No politician can fix problems that stem from structural flaws inherent to modern money. Once the foundation is fixed, then solutions to higher-order challenges can follow suit, but until then, any efforts will continue to prove ineffective. A currency is the foundation of an economy because it coordinates all economic activity. If an economy is functionally breaking down, it would be more appropriate to say that the underlying currency is not effectively coordinating economic activity. The currency is the input and the economy is the output. In short, the fly in the ointment is the money. While many are focused on how to solve the problem of massive wealth inequality, very few connect that the greatest source of inequality lies in the tool that everyone is using to coordinate the entire orchestra. It is not just that the economy is not working for many, it is that the dollar or euro, yen, etc., as the primary mechanism coordinating economic resources, is failing for everyone. Economic imbalance and growing inequality is the new normal. But there is nothing natural about sustained economic imbalance. In fact, it is an economic oxymoron. Balance is critical to the functioning of any economy, and when functioning properly, an economy would naturally eliminate imbalance in its normal course. If an economy fails to do so, and instead allows imbalance to be sustained, that is evidence of a broken economic structure. But the massive and growing economic imbalance which exists today is not the inevitable and unavoidable consequence of free market capitalism. Instead, it is principally a result of central bank monetary policy, which allows economic imbalances to be sustained in ways that would otherwise not be possible. Central bank monetary policy is the exogenous force creating massive economic distortion and extreme levels of inequality. The mere existence of economic inequality is not in itself an inequity. In fact, unequal outcomes are both natural and entirely consistent with economic balance. On the other hand, the inequality which has been created and exacerbated by a flawed monetary system is an inequity, and it is not natural to a free market economy. It is exogenous. The structural flaw inherent to the dollar currency system, or any fiat currency system, is the force most responsible for sustained economic imbalance. Unsustainable and extreme wealth disparity follow from that imbalance. Every other distortive economic action or policy exists at higher orders than the issues created by the manipulation of the money itself. That is the root of all structural economic problems, and until it is fixed, the world will remain suspended in an increasingly fragile state. The legacy monetary system centralizes and consolidates wealth. That is the output of sustaining and exacerbating economic imbalance. It is a system that works for the few in the short term, but fails for all in the long run, because the end game of monetary manipulation and an ever-growing economic imbalance is instability. The currency's ability to coordinate economic activity degrades gradually and eventually fails completely. Everyone pays that inevitable price. Bitcoin is the polar opposite. It is one currency that works for all, now and in the future. It eliminates imbalance as a natural function, wherever and as soon as it appears, because its supply cannot be manipulated. With a fixed supply capped at 21 million and an ever-increasing adoption curve, more and more people own Bitcoin, and each person controls a smaller and smaller share of the same fixed pie. The ownership of the currency naturally becomes more distributed and less concentrated over time, which provides a foundation for greater balance. Bitcoin levels the playing field and ensures that the monetary system cannot itself be a source of extreme inequity. It does so by guaranteeing certain inalienable rights. 
every holder of the currency is provided the assurance that more units of the currency will not be arbitrarily produced, and each unit of the currency is treated equally within the network. Bitcoin more effectively coordinates economic activity because its pricing mechanism cannot be distorted or manipulated by exogenous forces, which is the fatal flaw of the legacy currency system. A fixed supply, equal protection, and true price signals deliver greater balance. Bitcoin fixes the economic foundation for everyone such that everything else can then begin to fix itself. The Role of Money and the Price System As a simplified construct, think about money as the coordination function within an economy. The utility of money is to intermediate a series of exchanges. Receive, hold, spend. Hat tip at Pierre Richard. That simple. Money is the intermediary good used to both establish and trade value. As the market converges on a common form of money, a price system emerges, which allows for the subjective concept of value to be more objectively measured. Money is the pricing mechanism, and the output is a pricing system. The price system communicates information. It aggregates individual preferences within an economy and communicates those preferences through local prices, as measured in a common monetary medium. Change in prices reflects changes in preferences. Because preferences are ever-changing, so too are prices. Within a developed economy, there are millions of goods, each with individual prices resulting in billions of relative price signals. Relative price signals ultimately communicate exchange ratios between various combinations of goods. While the value of any single good may be static for a period of time, certain prices are always changing within an economy, which dictates that relative prices are ever-changing. An economy constantly works to find balance through the aggregate changes in price levels. Anyone and everyone within an economy reacts to the price signals most relevant to their own preferences, which naturally change and become dynamically influenced by changing prices themselves. Through the price system, individual market participants learn both what others value and what they need to produce to meet their own needs. As prices change, behaviors change, and everyone adapts. The price system is the visible hand which allows for balance to be achieved and for imbalance to be identified and eliminated. Long-term economic stability is achieved because variable information is constantly communicated through the price system. It is the fluctuation in prices inherent to undistorted markets that actively prevents large-scale and systemic imbalances from forming. Flaws of the Central Bank Mandate The foundation of the economy is broken because the money coordinating economic activity is actively manipulated. Most central banks, including the Fed, have the authority to create money arbitrarily at no cost and have a mandate to maintain stable prices, or in other words, a price stability mandate. This combination is fatal to the functioning of any price mechanism and ultimately to the underlying economy. When a central bank targets the stability of any price level, it is actually working in opposition to the natural course of an economy, which seeks to find balance and to adapt to a change in preferences through the price system. Worse yet, the means by which a central bank works to achieve price stability is through the manipulation of the money supply, which distorts the entire pricing mechanism underpinning the economy. With every exogenous attempt to achieve price stability, the central bank actively allows imbalances to be sustained and distributes bad information to every person within the economy through false price signals, which in turn causes further imbalances to grow. Imagine this happening each time the economy tried to find balance. By sustaining imbalance, those that principally benefited from the existence of imbalance are continuously advantaged at the expense of everyone else.
made worse. It actively impedes the ability of those on the lower end of the economic spectrum to contribute and to command a greater share of the resources within an economy. Artificially inflated asset prices create an uphill battle for those that do not own assets, and false signals induce poor economic decisions, disproportionately harming those lowest on the economic spectrum who can least afford errors and setbacks. False and distorted economic signals created through the manipulation of the money supply are counterproductive for all in the long run, but in the short term benefit those to whom the imbalance is positively skewed. For example, when the value of real estate was declining during the 2008 financial crisis, the price mechanism of the economy was communicating that there was an imbalance. In aggregate, market participants were communicating an increasing demand for money relative to a decreasing demand to hold real estate. At that particular moment in time, the actual amount of money and the available supply of real estate were not rapidly changing. Instead, preferences within the economy were shifting, as were relative price signals. Rather than allow the economy to find balance and eliminate the imbalance, the Fed increased the supply of dollars in an effort to, quote, stabilize the dollar value of real estate. More literally, it created $1.7 trillion and used those newly minted dollars to purchase mortgage-backed securities as a direct means to support the value of real estate. Those that owned real estate, for example, housing, or operated businesses dealing in the production of or financing of real estate, benefited disproportionately at the expense of those that did not. The benefit skewed to the side of existing imbalance, as it always does when imbalance is being sustained artificially. At this point, he's got a couple of great charts showing the difference between the homeownership rate, the labor participation rate, uh, mortgages, and then the national home price index, and just showing how out of whack those things are, as well as during the time and how much uh, money the uh, Federal Reserve had actually put into the purchasing of mortgage-backed securities. Obviously, it's not very easy to describe these things, but if you want to really kind of dig into the specifics and look at these charts, I highly recommend going to the link uh, in the show notes, uh, and you can go and check that out. There's actually a number of them that I've already skipped over, so definitely good to check out if you want to dig into some of the specifics and uh, see visually what was actually going on. Not only did the Fed manipulate the value of real estate, it manipulated and distorted all price signals within the economy by significantly increasing the money supply. The market function to eliminate imbalance would have been for prices to change. The Fed's solution was the opposite. It devalued the money by increasing its supply, such that the value of real estate, among other goods, as priced in dollars, would change the least. Rather than eliminate imbalance, the Fed's actions allowed imbalances to be sustained and actually grow. Once one actually appreciates the fundamental role which money and the pricing mechanism play in coordinating economic activity, it becomes clear as day that sustaining imbalance is precisely what occurs each time the Fed intervenes to stabilize price levels. Stability when achieved through manipulation merely suppresses volatility. It creates an unnatural rigidity in price when price fluctuation is both a desired state and the natural function of a market communicating changes in preferences. When imbalances that would otherwise be eliminated are allowed to be sustained by artificial means and for extended periods of time, it ultimately creates greater volatility in the long run and critically impairs the ability of a monetary medium to coordinate economic activity, which is its singular utility. Each time and cumulatively, it advantages and further embeds the incumbents, just as the market is working to eliminate imbalance. Rather than have a billion people that actually make up an economy set prices, a few number of people unilaterally change the whole game 
by clicking a few buttons on a computer screen. It distorts the entire value chain of the pricing mechanism. By manipulating price levels, the Fed isn't just preventing smaller intermittent fires from naturally running their course while creating larger fires down the road. Instead, think of the Fed's actions as the arsonist that lights a fire, leaves through the back door in the middle of the night, and then is celebrated as a hero when it arrives through the front door to fight the fire with gasoline. A change in price levels, even if particularly volatile, is not a fire that needs putting out. Artificially preventing changes in price, aka a price stability mandate, is what lights the fire in the first place. The Fed co-ops the entire value chain of the pricing mechanism. Change in price is actually desired, and the central bank works in opposition to that change by manipulating the money supply. The formation of imbalance within an economy is natural. Creating a centralized mechanism which prevents imbalances from being eliminated, is the unnatural and damaging part. It also creates long-term economic instability by distorting price signals over decades and widens the wealth gap by constantly advantaging those on the right side of the imbalance. Predictably and unironically, the existence of the central bank's price stability mandate combined with the power to print money, causes both long-term instability and sustained economic imbalances. Hayek, The Pretense of Knowledge Quote, In fact, in the case discussed, the very measures which the dominant macroeconomic theory has recommended as a remedy for unemployment, namely the increase of aggregate demand, have become a cause of a very extensive misallocation of resources which is likely to make later large-scale unemployment inevitable. The continuous injection of additional amounts of money at points of the economic system where it creates a temporary demand which must cease when the increase of the quantity of money stops or slows down, together with the expectation of a continuing rise of prices, draws labor and other resources into which can last only so long as the increase of the quantity of money continues at the same rate, or perhaps even only so long as it continues to accelerate at a given rate. What this policy has produced is not so much a level of employment that could not have been brought about in other ways, as a distribution of employment which cannot be indefinitely maintained, and which after some time, can be maintained only by a rate of inflation which would rapidly lead to a disorganization of all economic activity. The fact is that, by a mistaken theoretical view, we have been led into a precarious position in which we cannot prevent substantial unemployment from reappearing. Not because, as this view is sometimes misrepresented, this unemployment is deliberately brought about as a means to combat inflation, but because it is now bound to occur as a deeply regrettable but inescapable consequence of the mistaken policies of the past as soon as inflation ceases to accelerate. End quote. Most mainstream economics professors would readily agree that price fixing or setting quotas on certain economic goods naturally creates economic inefficiency and imbalance. However, the same cohort of experts would then turn around and avidly defend central bank monetary policy, not realizing the fundamental inconsistency. Economic manipulation is economic manipulation. Rigidity in price or quantity of any economic good driven by exogenous forces results in imbalance. Variance allows for balance and equilibrium. Very logical and not controversial. Why then is the same not understood when applied to money? Imbalances are created when central banks target interest rates through the manipulation of the supply of money, just as imbalances are created when the Venezuelan government arbitrarily sets the price of a gallon of gas below its market value. Ironically, the manipulation of the money supply happens to be economically more destructive because it distorts all prices within an economy and all relative price signals as individual price levels do not adjust ratably 
In fact, far from it. When the Fed pursues its price stability mandate, it is actively sending false price signals throughout an economy and causing imbalances in supply and demand structures to be sustained. Price stability is price manipulation, and it is perfectly predictable that when the price of money is manipulated to achieve any definition of stability, the very action causes a degree of economic distortion far worse than the manipulation of any single market. Hayek, The Use of Knowledge in Society Quote, We must look at the price system as such a mechanism for communicating information if we want to understand its real function, a function which, of course, it fulfills less perfectly as prices grow more rigid. Even when quoted prices have become quite rigid, however, the forces which would operate through changes in price still operate to a considerable extent through changes in the other terms of the contract. The most significant fact about this system is the economy of knowledge with which it operates, or how little the individual participants need to know in order to be able to take the right action. In abbreviated form, by a kind of symbol, only the most essential information is passed on, and passed on only to those concerned. It is more than a metaphor to describe the price system as a kind of machinery for registering change, or a system of telecommunications which enables individual producers to watch merely the movement of a few pointers, as an engineer might watch the hands of a few dials, in order to adjust their activities to changes of which they may never know more than is reflected in the price movement. End quote. All right, we've already gone pretty long, and this is a really long piece, and I want to talk a little bit about I want to have a guy's take for uh, this first section. We're not actually quite halfway through it, so we'll have another probably 30 minutes or 35 minutes to read uh, for tomorrow's episode, but I really need to split it up because I, I don't think I'll finish it all today. Uh, so let's go ahead and hit our sponsor real quick. And then we will jump back in and I'll give Guy's take on this because this is so many fundamental aspects of like the price system and what it even means to have an imbalance in the economy that I love digging into. Um, so we will talk about it in just a minute. Let's hit our sponsor and we'll be right back. All right. So Bitcoin is one for all the first, not quite the first half, but he hits all of the main uh principles that that are kind of being laid out before he gets into really digging into uh, the imbalance itself and the consequences of sustaining it and then the comparison of a market uh, that does not so so he, he really starts getting into specifics after this but this was really kind of a great spot to 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 pause it at because he's kind of laid all the groundwork to get us there I'm sure many of you are familiar with this, and if you haven't listened to uh, Hayek's uh, The Use of Knowledge in Society, I recommend it all the time, and it is literally one of my favorite pieces um, that we have done on this show. It's so good um, about the pricing mechanism and what it actually does, uh, and Parker Lewis does a really good job of just kind of summing up that general overview of what is actually happening happening um in the price system and understand that the price itself the 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 lack of manipulation in the medium that becomes the money the the fact that that tool or that good in the economy is most stable in terms of its supply which is why gold became money i mean obviously there are other characteristics but this is the most crucial factor in it actually sustaining its value in in relation making it a good relative price mechanism. And that's that's one of those um, kind of fundamental aspects of pricing and money that are so critical to understand that prices are only useful relative to each other. The medium itself, the, the unit of measurement, doesn't really matter. It's about the fact that I can measure something at $4 and another thing at $6, and that that is a meaningful comparison uh, weighed against the preferences of those in the economy 
and the available factors of production, the, the different goods that went into producing the $6 thing, uh, including the skills, the, the, you know, maybe the steel, the energy, the, the distance that it had to travel, etc. And then those same factors of production for the $4 thing so that I can make a good economic decision um, in comparison to what I get out of those two competing products. What does the $4 one get me that the $6 one does or doesn't and vice versa? But that's why those relative prices must be accurate. They must mean something. And uh, the most liquid good in the economy becomes the best at measuring those things against each other. It provides the most accurate, um, that's why, that, that's why, quote unquote, the thing that becomes, I understand it doesn't really have to be dollars. It doesn't have to be gold. There is simply going to be something in the economy, like, like throughout history, even things that didn't serve that function really well, but did it better than other goods, cattle, salt, seashells like so many different things throughout history have served as that role because they were the most liquid thing therefore the price in comparison to that was just better than trying to compare it in relation to shoes or uh you know chickens or anything that was simply crappier at the job so the economy was more productive the economy uh sustained fewer imbalances and corrected easier based on whatever good was most liquid and most available as a unit of uh, comparison, as, as one that allowed for those relative prices to actually emerge most accurately. So salt might have been terrible, really, in, the, in a general sense. There's a whole lot of other factors in the economy that um, will cause the supply of salt to shift and, you know, weather factors and, you know, production changes and all that stuff. But at that time, it would basically necessarily mean that salt was the least of all the possible candidates as far as manipulation and also most demanded. It was, it was most widely recognized and useful in so many contexts that it ended up becoming the money for a span of history. Obviously, it doesn't come close to comparing to Bitcoin as money, and that's one of those uh, elements that makes that to, to truly understand the value and the function of money in, in society, you realize that simply a society that adopts something like Bitcoin as money, that because it is such a superior asset to work as money, the economy is actually going to be orders of magnitude more productive, more healthy, and uh, uh, will sustain fewer and fewer imbalances in comparison to anything that doesn't use Bitcoin as money. But the most important factor that Parker Lewis talks about in this, and, and this is why I think the fight, I mean, the speech I gave at Bitblock Boom was about Bitcoin being an unstoppable force. And one of those, one that I, I damn near almost wrote the entire speech about was the differences between the markets. And that's really what Parker Lewis is hitting on here is that Probably the most valuable aspect of Bitcoin, not even probably, like just simply put, the reason Bitcoin is such a powerful force in uh, comparison to the dollar is the fact that it doesn't create these imbalances. It doesn't create fr fragility because its supply can't be manipulated. Therefore, these huge systemic imbalances and in this, this inequity in uh the the actual structure of the economic system cannot be sustained. So Bitcoin simply won't have that. And because of it, it will create greater wealth and will be able to outproduce um, the legacy economy with a smaller portion of the economy. Like think about it, if Bitcoin is able to allocate resources 10 times as accurately and more efficiently as the dollar, well, then one-tenth of the economy will be as productively valuable. Like, it will clear up enough crappy industries that should have died and correct the price of real estate versus, uh, versus Bitcoin uh, better. Like, like, it would simply begin to correct all of those broken functions in the legacy economy within the closed-loop Bitcoin economy. But there's a great quote that I grabbed early on in, uh, in this article uh, just talking about stability, and this is something I talked about on, or, or what was I? I was, I was with CK, CK and David, uh, David Hoffman on um, 
uh, oh God, a POV crypto. And we were just talking about stability in general. And um, I was arguing basically that stability doesn't make any sense. And I was making essentially the same argument that Parker Lewis is uh, doing a great job of articulating in this piece is that price stability is you it's good to have price stability if it's natural prices because that means that the economy is stable and there are no, are no imbalances or huge shifts in preferences that are being that need correcting in the market so as a consequence of the reality of the economy it's like okay it would be gr good to have um stable prices because that just means there's not a whole lot in fluctuation there's not we're not going through some massive transition or correcting some sort of imbalance that has, you know, come known to the economy. But price stability itself is meaningless if it's not refle a reflection of the actual economy. So the quote here is uh, from a Parker Lewis here, quote, as prices change, behaviors change and everyone adapts. The price system is the visible hand which allows for balance to be achieved and for imbalance to be identified and eliminated. Long-term economic stability is achieved because variable information is constantly communicated through the price system. It is the fluctuation in prices inherent to undistorted markets that actively prevents large-scale and systemic imbalances from forming." End quote. The only reason the economy doesn't grow massive trillion-dollar imbalances is because prices move. It is because of the variance in the price system, correcting for all of the knowledge across society, all of the preferences of the billions of people involved in those transactions. Because the price is allowed to move, that is why a free market economy will correct a imbalance. And that's why when we have these huge uh, sustained imbalances for 10 years, it's met with this massive volatility and this huge, like, destructive correction because the price has been, un has been not allowed to move. They've been manipulating the money to cook the books so that we've not seen the real variance in the prices. We're reading fake prices. And then we make completely wrong decisions when the $6 thing actually costs... Uh, $7 to make, and the $4 thing is actually a quote-unquote $10 valuation. It should be that those roles should be reversed. We make the wrong economic decisions because prices, again, are relative. Then we have this huge, you know, it results in some massive imbalance somewhere. It always, it always starts in one area because, uh, and Parker Lewis actually points this out, that the Fed manipulating the money supply, there's zero way that they can do it in a blanket manner. It's only, they, they only ever can funnel it into one direction and then necessarily um, uh, one asset or one part of the economy or one demographic or whatever it is, is going to have completely false pricing because the money is going to flow in and it takes hundreds, thousands of transactions and years of working through and people making decisions and selling houses versus buying houses and building and uh, uh, making new products and starting new production lines for those prices to actually work themselves out. So if the Fed just stopped, we would get back to normal prices in, you know, three or four years, but they're constantly manipulating the supply. Um, and uh, of course, the fractional reserve system in general just does this. Uh, so because there's that constant manipulation, it's like, it's like no matter what we do to try to level out the amount of water in the, the aquarium, there's always just this waterfall of water coming in on one side of it. And no matter what, it's going to be out of balance and the water is going to be shifting all over the place and nobody's going to be dealing with the same uh, conditions. Like, like the, the medium of money uh, simply stops being able to tell us the truth about the economy so that we make bad decisions. We make the wrong decisions. Uh, and it's exactly... That's what the free market does when we have these credit crises. That is the market screaming at us that there's an imbalance, that there is a huge, terrible decision that we have made for decades investing in the wrong things and wasting resources in the wrong place and 
we should be correcting it as fast as possible and letting the market figure out what the real prices are. And as soon as it starts to fall, because the wealthy have been benefiting from this imbalance, well, the government swoops in and tries to say, all right, well, we're going to print, you know, $2 trillion or whatever it is, and we're going to keep the imbalanced prices by essentially cementing them through the manipulation of the money supply. We're going to, we're going to take all of, we're going to um, cook the books and specifically put all of this new money right where it needs to be so this this horrible uh this horrible imbalance that has uh stolen massive amounts of wealth from the poor and uh created a huge misallocation of resources into an industry that should never have had that much money going toward it and has completely disaligned from the incentives and the preferences of the actual people in the economy well we're going to make it permanent by just buying up all the assets that the market is now trying to correct for so even though real estate was like 300% its normal price, well, we will simply print money and buy up all the assets um, so, that, so that we can keep the price up there, even though the market is like, we need a 70% haircut. We need, to be, we need to chop all of this fat out of the economy, and we need to divest from real estate as fast as possible because it's overbloated, um, it's completely unsustainable, and it's just going to cause us, it's going to give us a horrible, horrible future. The free market has literally done everything possible to correct for this, and the Fed is doing everything it can to sustain it. And Parker Lewis does such a good job of just making it, making it clear that the very concept of a price stability mandate necessitates the fact that they are fucking up the economy. They are literally just ruining the economic structure, that the very foundation of what makes economic activity sustainable and, um, and balanced is being destroyed. It's being broken. Stability for the sake of stability is the absolute worst possible goal we could have. If we get stability because the reality of the economy is that things are stable and healthy, that's good. But it's, it's the result. It's taking the temperature. It's not the actual conditions. You don't make the infection go away by manipulating the thermometer. And yet that is, that is the equivalent, that is the, the analogous job that the Federal Reserve does in the economy. They make the recognition, the, politi the political class makes the recognition that if, uh, you know, we have a temperature of 98.6 degrees, that means we're healthy and stable and not sick. But when the temperature goes up to 103, they just break the thermometer until they, they just manipulate it until it goes back down to 98.6 and we're sick and we're unhealthy and we're also not changing our behavior because their, their mandate is to just have 98.6 as the outcome. doesn't matter about the truth of it. doesn't matter if we're dying in bed, uh, you know, sweating our balls off. We, they're just destroying the very mechanism of how we know and are able to correct our decisions and our behaviors when we get sick. Every single attempt they make to get price stability through the only tool that the central bank has is what sustains imbalances. It is, the very, it is their very mandate that distributes the bad information throughout the entire economy, that breaks the price signals, and allows imbalances to get worse. Now, my, fa my favorite quote in this, there, I mean, there's, there's so much gold. I actually like, saved like four or five quotes here, but um, I'm not going to read them all. I'm already running out of time here. Um, but the, the, just the best analogy I thought uh, that he hit in the first half of this um, was the one that I put at the beginning of this episode. Uh, and it's, quote, by manipulating price levels, the Fed isn't just preventing smaller, in, smaller intermittent fires from naturally running their course while creating larger fires down the road, which technically you could say, you know, is potentially the case, is that, you know, like uh, by manipulating the debt and allowing prices to be sustained, they're like, okay, well, let's say the economy uh, is a little bit out of balance and then the Fed comes in to correct and make sure that there is... There is no correction back down. 
uh, to the proper course. Well, that all that does is it means that down the road we're going to have to have a bigger correction because we didn't correct it the short like this the first time. So in that in that analogy, he's saying that like you know just like um, you you have controlled burns in a forest, you have small fires that prevents from having this huge problem later on where there's so much underbrush and there's uh, it's grown so high and so thick. That when the fire actually does come, it's a raging, massive fire that burns so hot that rather than just uh, going through the underbrush, it literally kills the entire forest. It just wipes out everything, and it's massive, and it's unstoppable, um, which is absolutely something that happens, and the Fed's policy just naturally is a force for doing exactly that, basically preventing the, the regular small controlled burns so that when a fire does get out of hand, there's a massive unstoppable fire that just wipes out everything. But by manipulating the price levels, the Fed isn't just causing this problem, but, quote, instead, think of the Fed's actions as the arsonist that lights a fire leaves through the back door in the middle of the night, and then is celebrated as the hero when it arrives through the front door to fight the fire with gasoline. <laughs> and I just thought that was amazing. I was like, yes. Because the Fed itself, the very nature of the fractional reserve system and the manipulation of interest rates, just the sheer setting of interest rates and the, the creation and, and uh, basically guarantee of reserves in order to pull that off, is what starts the fire. It's the very thing that creates the conditions that leads to an imbalance. And then when the imbalance gets so bad that it starts to just burn everything down, they come, they come running in and throw gasoline on it. They just double, triple, quadruple down on exactly what's causing the problem to begin with. And the inevitable long-term consequence is the destruction of the whole forest. It's, it's just wiping out everything and having a full reset. That's, how, that's what hyperinflation is. It's the end result of constantly doing this until there's a fire so big that there's nothing they can do and they both started the fire and prevented all of the intermittent ones, intermittent burns and corrections along the way and then finally it gets so big and the imbalance gets so great that reality comes and smacks them in the face and there's no, there's no amount of cooking the books that can uh, cover up the breaking of the price system because faith is lost in the entire system itself and people simply divest from the money. It goes until the very money is destroyed and therefore the economy cannot survive. Like Again, he, he talks about very clearly in this, which is another... Another thing we've talked about numerous times on the show, that the money is the foundation. The money comes before the economy can actually be uh, created. It's what enables the economy to actually allocate things. So when you destroy the money, you destroy everything. Everything has to be reset. The, the ownership of all goods, the ownerships of debt. I mean, what does it mean to have worked with somebody for 10 years and to owe them money back when the money just gets reset? Like... All of the all the economic past is just completely wiped out, and you start from a blank slate because they've just destroyed everything. And now, now you have to go through another like a five, ten year process of trying to find some other good that hopefully the Fed can't continue to manipulate and uh, continue to destroy the very function of the economy to rebuild from. So it's just like thank God we have Bitcoin for this because. What the hell would we do? Just get their replacement, their dollar 2.0? We just wait until hope they realize that they're the ones causing all of the problems and that they shouldn't have any power or any responsibility whatsoever and then they voluntarily give it up? No. Good luck waiting for that day. Okay. Let's go ahead and close this one out. Um, uh, great start to this piece, um, but this, is, this might be one of the longest in the entire series. Um, but it's good, and we've got some really, uh, there's some really great sections further down in this that I'm really excited to get to and talk about. But again, we will save it for tomorrow. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. And again, one last thank you to 
Uh, a shout out to Gary Leland for putting on Bitblock Boom and making this thing happen. A uh, shout out to Marriott for hosting and putting up with a bunch of crazy Bitcoiners flooding their building. Um, and uh, uh, a shout out to everybody uh, who I got to hang out with. I mean, it was it was just an absolute blast. And I, I'm so happy to, that I got to meet so many people. So so thank you all. And, uh, uh, you know, nothing else to add. Just make sure you're stacking sats. You know, make sure you auto DCA as we move into what I genuinely think is going to be a massive, uh, incredible bull run. I mean, look at look at the system that needs divesting from and how much capital is at risk. That is that is the potential flood into Bitcoin. So if you are not auto DCAing, if you are not auto buying Bitcoin in a savings plan right now at Swan Bitcoin, you are making a mistake. Buy Bitcoin every week. Every day now, actually, uh, every day, every week, every paycheck, every month, uh, whatever frequency you want to do it. And of course, get the lowest fees when doing so at swanbitcoin.com slash guy. And you get $10 free to start off. You just, you just get it free for supporting Bitcoin Audible. So thank you for everyone who is doing that. Just, just for securing your own future, but also for supporting the show. It feels good, and I appreciate it, and I love you guys, and I'm uh, so happy that you're enjoying the show. And if you are, don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to subscribe and share it out with everybody you know in the Bitcoin and uh, all, your, all your noob friends, too. It's time. It's time they hear it. Uh, you know there's somebody who's on the edge of the rabbit hole and looking, like peering down, wondering what the hell is going on in there and all, who all these crazy people are. Send them to Bitcoin Audible. Send them to Guy Swan, and I'll tell them all about it. I'll come back tomorrow with part two of Bitcoin is One for All by Parker Lewis at the Unchained Capital blog. And until then, take it easy, guys. This has been a 111 production and you were listening to Bitcoin Audible on the Crypto Economy Network.